been a fantastic time to kind of watch the world around us, not politically. Well, maybe, I guess. Culturally, maybe, I guess. But scientifically, of course, I'm going to go the Nature Channel route. You know that. That's where I always tend to go when thinking of these things. But one of those amazing things to think about happened, I guess, about a month ago or so. I didn't really look up the exact date. We had a full blood moon lunar eclipse. It was pretty cool. I don't know if you actually made it out to look at it. Some of you I know are early to bed, early to rise, and so it actually happened after you are already in the bed. Some of us are maybe a little bit more uh, oriented toward the late night, and so we hadn't yet gone to rest when uh, if you went outside and looked at the sky, uh, the moon did something amazing. You had a full lunar eclipse, and so it starts by turning a little bit dusky, a little bit shadowy, and then turning full-on red. It was amazing. I mean, think about it. You've got a lunar eclipse and a total solar eclipse in just a matter of years. It's a really amazing thing, uh, time in which we live. But as watching that, and in fact, actually, the solar eclipse as well, one of those uh, weird things to think about was to think, you know, uh, science today, the Lord has been very generous to us, and we have a really good understanding of how a lot of things work, and they're able to predict exactly when these things are going to happen and where you'll be able to stand to see them in the exact minute that it'll happen, and you can figure everything out. But that's not been the case for most of human history. It is really fun to stand there and watch the moon turn red and to think about, can you imagine having lived well before this had been discovered kind of scientifically? And to think that, you know, one night and it's late, the kids are in bed, maybe the wife's in bed, you got to get up and go to the bathroom. You walk out of whatever living dwelling you're in, you know, whatever kind of abode it is, tent, house, mud, who knows. You walk out to find your favorite tree in the middle of the night. And when it comes time to see the light of the moon, oh no. I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, just emotionally, kind of think about the process that the, the first time you got up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, and instead of the moon being white the way it had been, Every single night of your entire life prior to that, it's bright red. I don't know about you, but I would have been fairly certain that the world was ending. I mean, I'm pretty sure about that. The moon is one of those things that it's fairly predictable if you, you know, kind of pay attention to it. It gets bigger, gets smaller, gets bigger, gets smaller. We have a really good idea of that, and we have for a really long time. And then one day it turns red. The world is ending. similar kind of thoughts as I've been thinking through the 10 plagues. You know, we have this great interchange that uh, many of us have known since we were little, some of us not, and that's fine, that's great. Honestly, the, the less you know at this point, it might be a little bit of an easier sermon, but to, to think through uh, how familiar we are with Yul Brenner, how familiar we are with the campy 1970s or 60s movie, whatever that is, 50s, I don't know. And how much that's informed our imagination, and we've kind of sometimes unintentionally made the text a little bit sterile. To think that we're watching here in chapters 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, we're watching a conversation that takes place more or less in two places, in one palace, in one small part of one of the biggest, greatest, most powerful countries in the world. 
We watch a conversation that takes place between Moses and Pharaoh, probably just out in front of the palace, right there and next to the shore of the Nile where he has his you know, morning constitutional bath and things like that. And most likely a conversation that's taking place uh, in his meeting room right there in the palace, wherever it is. But to just for a moment step outside of the story that we are so familiar with and to just pause for a moment and think, what would it have felt like to be a normal Egyptian? I mean, can you imagine that? You're a normal Egyptian going about your normal business, worshiping your normal gods. Well, I mean, they're really abnormal by our standards. They're bizarre. Right? You have the god of the Nile. We're going to see in just a moment. You have the goddess uh, Heket, which is a female goddess with the head of a frog. It's bizarre. Uh, you have Ra, the sun god, who's going to be defeated at the end here. You have all of these kind of slightly bizarre gods, but you go about your daily business, and one day you walk out, and the entire Nile turns to blood. And I think you'd probably be fairly convinced you'd never seen that before, and it was probably not a good day when that happened. Your first thought would have been the world is ending. Go back, run to the house, try to find something to drink, and all of the pitchers that you have stored, they've turned to blood. Maybe we can dig a hole and find something to drink. And it gets stranger after that in many ways. Plague number two shows up, chapter 8. Now we know the other side of the story. The Lord and Moses and Pharaoh are having a conversation again. This time God leads with frogs. And when we think about frogs, you have to think about not just a couple of frogs. A plague of frogs is a lot of frogs. It's a lot of frogs. In fact, actually, the way the grammar of this is structured is it implies that the Pharaoh himself will have frogs upon his royal person. When do you have frogs upon your royal person? When there are so many frogs, you cannot avoid the frogs. Which I'm not really okay with, but if I have to pick any of the options, this is probably the one I'm going with out of all the plagues. Stretch out your hands with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, over the pools. Make frogs come up out of the land of Egypt. Aaron does, verse 6, and the frogs show up. The battle that was begun in the previous chapter last week in our sermon, the battle between the real God and the false God continues, this time not over blood, but over frogs. Again, assaulting the very Nile itself, showcasing how the God of the Bible has power over the the most spectacular idols the world has ever seen. Jewish tradition says that this one took a week, very much like the last one. This other part, actually, again, you think about those of you that have watched the movie and seen the flannel graph and learned, most of us assume that these plagues took place over the space of about like eight or ten days, you know, kind of thing, maybe 12 days. That's kind of our natural assumption. And to think that more likely this is probably taking place over the space of two to, two to four months. I mean, this is devastating destruction over and over and over and over again throughout uh, Egypt's history. The frogs show up. 
Now, again, the Lord invites us into this conversation that he's having here, and we get to see uh, now uh, Pharaoh's magicians show up, and they, too, are able to replicate the frogs. Again, I suspect my own personal conviction. I think they're probably using demonic influence here. The demons themselves having some way to help manufacture their magic because Pharaoh refuses to obey. And destruction follows because Pharaoh's heart is hard. Verse 15, the refrain. When Pharaoh, this is 8.15, when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, a break, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them. That word hardened is key because it's over and over and over and over again in the passage. Pharaoh hardens his heart. God hardens Pharaoh's heart. It's also the word that is going to kind of be translated heavy for the most of these plagues where it says that it was exceedingly burdensome. It was heavy on the land. A very similar kind of concept. It's destructive. It is difficult. Until the third plague. This one's intriguing as there's no warning given. This is not the direct following of a conversation between Moses and Pharaoh. Instead, the Lord says to Moses, it's time to act. Oh, oh, okay. Stretches out his staff, strikes the dust of the earth so that it becomes gnats in the land of Egypt. Again, uh, this is, I would suggest, maybe a, a plague not so much in, geared toward destruction on beast as much as it is psychological warfare. Uh, a number of years ago, I was traveling on a mission trip and providentially happened to land in a major city uh, at the one day of the year that their mayflies swarm. Have you ever watched that on like the Nature Channel where they have about 78 quadrillion mayflies descend uh, on you know a city in the space of about uh, 24 hours? They're there for 24 hours. They do their thing, and then they all, all either fly away or die off. And it was amazing because walking outside, like you would not have been able to see your car if you parked in the gravel parking lot from here. Now, again, it wasn't painful. They didn't bite. But my goodness, was it annoying. I mean, just the idea of going outside, they're in your nose, they're in your ears, they're in your eyes. I'm so sorry if you're wearing a skirt. I mean, it's terrible. It's terrible. And then now, not so much with these mayflies, but gnats that are just overwhelming the land. The magicians, again, with their demonic influence, I think, try to uh, copy it. They're not able to for whatever reason. The Lord has withdrawn their ability uh, or their uh, fancy illusions are not able to replicate. But verse 19, Pharaoh's heart was hard. He would not listen as the Lord had said. Mm, Oh, look, that's a direct quote of the previous plague. Verse 20, we get into the fourth plague, and this is where it changes. This is where it goes from wonderfully inconvenient uh, to much, much worse. Go find Pharaoh. Find him as he has his morning constitutional bath, whatever, out at the Nile. As he goes out to the water, thus says the Lord, tell him, let my people go. 
or I will send swarms of flies on you, your servants, your houses. And you think, well, what's the big deal? What's the difference between flies and gnats? Is he, is he not just replicating the same plague? Well, no, there's a big difference kind of vocabulary-wise here is that the first ones were annoying. These bite. Ugh. The houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies. The ground on which they stand... But as the plague now intensifies this great display of God's power, verse 22 marks a major change in the development of God's plan. I will showcase my judgment, but I will not showcase it on my people. I will showcase my power and my glory. I will showcase my creative, destructive ability, but it will no longer happen to my people. They will be protected by my hand. I love to think about exactly how this worked. Again, just think about the physics, the, the, the biology of this. The Lord brings in these swarms of flies. Amazing thing, like you're walking through the swarm and you step into Israel's land and the swarm stops. It's clean and clear. It doesn't crunch anymore when you step. Ah, disgusting. Seems like Pharaoh begins to soften, but instead, what he begins to do now is negotiate. He begins to try to barter. He begins to try to squirm his way into safety. And of course, it doesn't work. The plagues then intensify. We get to the fifth. God promising now to do something that they've never seen before. A plague that will fall upon the livestock of Egypt. Now striking at the heart of their economy, striking at the heart of their ability to feed themselves, striking at their industry, it's striking at all of what it would mean to sustain Egypt. The Lord sends the plague and all of the livestock of Egypt dies. Now, we do have to do a bit of a caveat because we've read this a million times, most of us, and we've read it incorrectly. We've read that all of the livestock of Egypt died and think that every single animal of their livestock died. Which is kind of problematic because in a handful of verses later, the Lord tells them to bring their livestock inside. The Lord's acknowledging he didn't even kill all of the livestock. Where did it come from? It's probably, I would guess, that we're actually uh, misreading what that all of the livestock meant. It doesn't mean every single animal, but all kinds of animals, enough to say that it is a full representation of the livestock of Egypt. It's like if you went to a really sad movie and when somebody asked you about it later, it was like, how was it watching that in the theater? It had to be terrible. And you would say, well, everybody was bawling their eyes out. Well, I mean, not everybody was bawling their eyes out, right? There's always the one hard-hearted guy who's sitting in the back who just went to make his wife happy, and he's like, oh, just make it end. He's not crying. But our grammar allows for that. 
Verse 7, and the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people go again. We get to 6 and this one, ah. The Lord commands they take handful of soot chuck it up into the sky. It turns into a fine dust. The Lord changes it miraculously from soot into dust. And then as it settles, it settles with disease on the land. Boils. Our best guesses, commentators think it's either uh, anthrax or uh, smallpox, leprosy, or something worse that we don't even know what it is. And I'm going to suggest that any of those options are not options I really want to contemplate. Right? A national outbreak of anthrax. I'll pass on that, thank you. I don't want to do that. I don't want to enjoy that uh, great pleasure. It descends on the land of Egypt. Again, uh, the idea being that God has protected his people. It doesn't fall upon Israel. And even this little dig that God puts in, highlighting the, de- uh, the, the, the destruction of his enemies. Verse 11, the magicians, uh, Pharaoh wants to call them in to help uh, his uh, debate against Moses. But the magicians, the boils are so bad, they're not even able to come and stand before Moses. The destruction has so settled in on the land. Seventh plague, hail, and not the kind of hail that we have here. And we've had some pretty good hail here. Remember, was it a better part of uh, maybe six, seven years ago, we had one really huge hailstorm. I mean, really huge hailstorm. We were staying on the front porch of Dick and Lou's house, actually, over on the other side of Fort Mill. And uh, I will remember this one because I almost saw Jesus, I think, on that one. Uh, There was a very large piece of hail out there that was about that big that I wanted to go grab. And I was like, ooh, I'm going to go just real quick, jump out, grab it. It's only maybe six feet. And right as I stepped out, one that was almost the size of a tennis ball hit right where my foot was. uh, Just missed the front of my nose. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to leave it. It'll be fine until afterwards. I don't think I'm going to go after that. This... Plague of hail is not just, you know, the good uh, kiwi-sized hail. These are very, very large bits of hail. Uh, But the part that we forget is that it's accompanied by a storm. And it's accompanied by a storm unlike normal storms. The way it's described here is it's a storm of darkness and, and fire. If you again remember the old movie, the way they try to portray it is the hail hits the ground and then turns to fire and run. I don't, I don't think that's actually probably the best portrayal. I think probably what it is is it's a storm that is so great the clouds are filled with blackness, it's filled with darkness, but that the lightning never stops. So it looks like the sky has been lit on fire. And oh yeah, by the way, death is falling from it. I, I love, too, the little details that are hidden in the text. And part of why I read this one is Moses and Pharaoh have the conversation. I already read this, verse 27. Pharaoh sent, called Moses and Aaron. They come to him. That's interesting. Moses sent for to go get, I mean, uh, Pharaoh sent to go get Moses and Aaron. They come to him. What's Moses' answer in verse 29? As soon as I have gone out of the city, I'll stretch out my hands and then I'll stop the hail. You missed this, didn't you? Moses, how are you going to get out of this city? God's already said that if you're outside, this is going to be fatal. How are you going to get out of the city? Because it's not going to fall on them. 
Because God's miraculous hand is placed as a hand of provision over his people. And again, you want to think about like the old cartoons, right? They carry the little umbrella and it's perfectly there. Rain falls everywhere except for them. Or the other way around where they have the one cloud that follows them with rain everywhere they walk. You think about Moses, the Lord's hand of protection is upon him. He walk wherever he wants. Walks with the Egyptians. They drop dead next to him from the giant hailstones and he's fine. I'll just walk out of the city. He'll be okay. The Lord will suspend his judgment. It notes here that uh, it destroys their fields. Flax and barley are destroyed, uh, but the wheat and the emmer are gone. You think about, again, the national destruction that's happening. The livestock have been decimated. Uh, the, uh, the amount of work lost from a labor force that's been struck with boils for who knows how long. Now, uh, two of your major crops of the year have been destroyed. Uh, Your Nile's already been turned to blood and killed all the fish. We're talking about devastation settling in on the land. And it hasn't gotten bad yet. Eight, the locusts show up. It's like a cloud. Unable to even see. There are so many. They destroy the land. Until nine. Nine is darkness. And again, you think, well, what's the big deal with darkness? I mean, what's a plague about darkness? We have darkness every night. In fact, I like darkness. It helps me sleep. Well, this plague's actually a little bit different kind of darkness. It's uh, tangible. It's, it's palpable. It's the kind that you can feel. And it's the kind that you cannot light lights in. One of the parts that we kind of miss with this is that when they go to their houses, the Egyptians in this plague of darkness and try to light their oil lamps, no light comes out. Verse 23, they did not see one another, (laughs) nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. They're fine. They're able to see. I mean, what kind of darkness is so dark that you don't leave your house for three days? It's like a nation went entirely blind because the hand of the Lord is upon them. You think, man, that's pretty strange. I mean, the plagues, I've been familiar with them my whole life. I've heard the story a hundred times. I've drawn pictures of them. I've watched the movie with Yul Brynner. You don't have to do that. But But what do I do with them? That's actually, I would suggest, the bigger question is to what what do we do with the plagues? How how do we file them away in our minds when it comes time to think about the ten plagues? What do we do with that? You realize God, in essence, kills almost an entire country. Either through the plague coming next week, the lingering economic devastation, the lingering physical consequences, the weakening of having anthrax or smallpox or whatever it was, the lingering consequences of an ecosystem that's suddenly nuked with a a river turning to blood, this nation is devastated. What do I do with that? How do I think about God working in this way? How do I understand 
a passage like this? Well, highlight just a couple of things very quickly. What is God doing with these ten plagues? First, 9 verse 16. But for this purpose, God speaking, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Oh, man. I love verses like that, right? That's my, that's one of those, hey, maybe I'll cross stitch that for myself and hang it on the wall and I'll, I'll be able to wake up every day and, you know, when I get up out of my bed, I'll be able to say, oh, right, this is the purpose God has raised me up to showcase his power so that God's name will be praised in all the earth. All oh, right, I'm excited about that, right? Who's that sentence actually delivered to? Pharaoh. This is not the promise that's given to Moses. Hey, Moses, look, you're going to be this great preacher. You're going to be this great pastor. You're going to be this great leader. You're going to do more miracles than almost anybody else in human history. You're going to, I've raised you up to showcase my power. No. I've raised Pharaoh up. Pharaoh is going to be the one who is the object that displays my mighty power. This is a category that we have in so many ways lost when we think about who God is. Is that God shows his power both in the way he works with his people and in the way he works with his enemies. He shows his mighty power displaying it in the complete and total destruction of his enemies. The modern equivalent of this today is to kind of remember categorically to understand that one of the greatest ways that God will ever put his glory on display will be in hell. To think that's the purpose of hell. The eternal destruction of his enemies for all eternity to display his mighty glory You say, well, that makes me a little bit uncomfortable. Good, you understand the passage correctly. You see, actually, I would say out of much of this book, these are the chapters that need to make us uncomfortable. We've come so familiar with them that it's easy for us to just kind of marginalize them and move on and to forget that God does display his glory in the destruction of his enemies. And that makes me a little bit sad. Because I have friends that are going to be the object of that. People that I love and care for. People that I've pastored. And they're going to glorify God in their destruction. Well, I got really serious, didn't it? There's a flip side to that same coin, though. 
Chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, God gives the other half of his purpose. It's the flip side to the same court. The Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. That's an interesting one. It's, it's the, the part that we get, but we've kind of, again, truncated a little bit. We, we understand part of why God puts his glory on display is so that we, his people, have our faith strengthened. Yay! And that's good and it should. But notice how he specifically here explains it. It's so that you pass on to the generations that are yet to come, the, the children and the, the grandchildren. And to tell them this story specifically of how God destroyed the Egyptians. That you may know that I am God. And again, this is confrontational for us in so many ways because we as uh, the American church, we we have worked so hard to kind of truncate who God is, to, to make him seem so smaller, so that he seems so safe and so manageable and so nice and so friendly and he's my buddy. And it's intriguing here, the instruction God giving is, look, you need to instruct your children about the destruction that I visited upon a nation so that they will know who I am because he is a God who is victorious over his enemies. He's putting on display his glory both in the destruction of Egypt and in the continuation and instruction of his people that they may know him and they may love him. This is an important thing for us to get as the church. I'm going to say it a little bit kind of inflammatory and hope we kind of unpack this a little bit, but if you don't understand the ten plagues, you can't understand Jesus. I know that's overstatement and inflammatory on purpose. But the point being is if you do not understand that God is a God of perfect and constant and always judgment, justice, and wrath. Again, remember, God doesn't change like we do. Like, I get angry, and then I put away my angry. And sometimes I get wrathful. That's usually not a good thing because it's not for a good reason. And then I put away my wrath. And most of the time I'm happy, and sometimes I put away that happy and do other things. But I'm only able to do one thing at a time. I'm a boy. You girls are able to do like nine things at a time, but it's still only nine. God is always all of who he is all of the time. And so we love to think about him being merciful all the time, and it's good we should. And we love to think about him being gracious all the time, and that's right and that's good and we should, but we forget he wrath all of the time. Victorious over his enemies all of the time. Perfectly just all of the time. I say that because when you forget that, you forget the significance of what the cross actually accomplishes. That in the cross, I get moved from Egypt to Israel. It's probably the easiest way to think about it in terms of a story like this. In the cross, I get moved from Egypt to Israel. You think about which one in the story I am. 
talked about this a couple of weeks ago in Sunday school. I, we love to be kind of this exemplary, which example am I? Who, who do I relate to in the story? Well, if you really wanted to get it right, you would be the slave that was left out in the field when the hailstorm hit. You probably wouldn't even know entirely why it happened. All you know is that you die and you came under the judgment of God. That's what we deserve. That's our, our role in the story. But the sweet mercy of Jesus is that he goes to the cross so that God's people are moved from the enemy to the family. Move from enemy to family. Move from conquered enemy to conquered child. Move from slave to righteousness. I mean, slave to sin to slave to righteousness. Moved from object of his wrath to even praising him for his wrath though that is emotionally difficult and demanding to do. This is also extremely important for us as we go through a kind of day-to-day living. It's one of the aspects that our culture has really embarked on an idea of justice. We've started having a national conversation for the last maybe three years, I guess, is what justice looks like in our culture. And it's interesting because it's such a reductionistic view of justice. Because it's something that can be presumed to be satisfied here. If it can be satisfied right now, then it's not justice. Because it's not solving the eternal issue. It's not solving that life and death, that heaven and hell. It's not solving that. When we understand that God is both kind and merciful all of the time. He's patient all of the time, obviously. But he is perfectly wrathful and perfectly victorious all of the time. It will also help us to understand the difficulties that we go through. That when we go through great evil, it is not because he's made a mistake. It's because he's showing his glory in a way we just don't know yet. We have sorrows and sadnesses, which we're going to have. He's putting his glory on display. I just don't know how yet. When we do have enemies, and honestly, let's be clear, most of our enemies aren't enemies. It's just we're being silly. But when we do have real and genuine enemies, the Lord will put his glory on display. And instead of me being the one who is trying to be the bringer of doom, I think I'll let him fill that job. Because he's got a pretty good resume. (laughs) Rather than me being the bringer of doom and vengeance, I'm going to just commit myself to the Lord. Commit myself to Christ. Commit myself to his spirit. And let him handle his glory. That'll be his job. Not mine. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Forgive us for the numerous times where we have tried to be the enforcer of plagues for our own sake, (laughs) defending our own names, proclaiming our own fame. Forgive us for our sin. Again, acknowledging we deserve to be those victims of your wrath, victims of your destruction. We thank you for Jesus, 
who by his blood brought us from death into life, from objects of wrath into objects of favor to your beloved children. Thank you in his name. Amen. Amen.